Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I preach this sermon you're about to hear on August 27th, 2017 at Hampton United Methodist Church. And this sermon is the first in a new series of sermons on the five core convictions of the Protestant Reformation. Why are these relevant today? Well, they're always relevant for us Christians, but especially because on October 31st of this year, we're going to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And I'm going to talk in this sermon about why, or throughout this series, about why these convictions are, are so relevant for us today. And I'm going to begin with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And my scripture is going to come from Paul's letter to the Galatians, which has a great deal to say about justification by faith alone. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you'll stick with me throughout this series. And I'm going to read the scripture now. Galatians 2, 11 to 14, and Galatians 3, 1 to 6. Let me read that. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him? as righteousness. Nearly 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, an Augustinian monk and theology professor named Martin Luther nailed a document to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. It wasn't unusual to nail things to this door. I mean, this was like a community bulletin board. You would often post announcements that you wanted people to read. In this case, however, Luther was inviting church officials to debate him on an important question. He took issue with a particular practice of his church, the Roman Catholic Church, that he believed was unbiblical, unchristian, and needed to be reformed. He had no idea that by posting this document that has since become known as the 95 Theses on that door, that he would launch the Protestant Reformation. 
And a couple of centuries later, our very own Methodist church uh, came into being, partly uh, because of Martin Luther. As Methodists, we are Protestants. Now, that's just a label. Most of us probably don't give much thought to what it means. We know that it means not Catholic, but that might be about all. But in this new sermon series, which celebrates the 500th anniversary of Protestantism, I want to talk about five core convictions that nearly all Protestants hold in common, including us Methodists. I'm not talking about them because I'm giving you a history lesson. I'm talking about them because I believe that they're still relevant today. I believe that if we take each one of them to heart, they will help us fall in love with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, more. I believe that they will enable us to glorify our Lord Jesus more and become more faithful followers of him. So let's begin this series with that core conviction, which in Latin is known as sola fide, Faith alone. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. First, what does it mean to be justified? Justification happens the moment we place our faith in Christ and his atoning work on the cross and his resurrection. When we are justified, God forgives us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, such that we can be confident right now that we will be saved. We can be confident right now that when we die and stand before God in final judgment, the verdict that he pronounces over our sins will be not guilty. We can be confident right now that we will spend eternity in heaven with our Lord Jesus. We Methodists like to talk about this confidence as as the gift of assurance. We remember Paul's words in Romans 8 that after we're justified, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. One one Methodist pastor gave me this mnemonic device to help me remember what justification means. When we're justified, it's just as if we had never sinned. And how are we justified? Through faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. And this is the main meaning of Paul's letter to the Galatians. There's so many great passages. I had to choose enough of it to give you a sense of what Paul is saying in all chapters of this wonderful uh, writing. False teachers have infiltrated these churches in Galatia that Paul started on his first missionary journey. In Paul's absence, they were teaching these Galatian Christians that they cannot be justified unless or until they do some things. They follow some Jewish ceremonial laws. The men have to get circumcised, for instance. And all of them have to follow Jewish dietary laws and they have to observe uh, holy days and festivals and seasons. And they have to do some other things, but they have to do these things 
in order to be saved. Yes, they still need to believe in Jesus. That's necessary for salvation. But but these teachers are teaching that they have to add these additional things to this faith. And Paul, in his most impassioned writing in the New Testament, says no. In fact, he says that if he or some other apostle or if anyone else, indeed, if an angel from heaven, Paul says, comes down to these Galatian churches and preaches a gospel that differs from the gospel that he preached to them when they first gave their lives to Christ and got saved, let him be accursed to help his readers understand why this is so important. In today's scripture, Paul describes an incident that happened some years earlier in Antioch when the apostle Peter came to visit Paul's church. Now, he's called Cephas here. Cephas is the Aramaic word for, the, for rock or rocky, uh, which in Latin is Peter, but he's called Cephas. And while he was at Paul's church, Peter was happily sharing meals with Gentile believers. Now, this was not something that Jews routinely did. Why? Because Gentiles did not observe Jewish dietary laws or or Jewish purity laws. So they were ritually unclean. And to share a meal with someone who was ritually unclean would risk making yourself unclean. So Orthodox uh, strict Jews would would separate themselves from Gentiles. But the gospel changed all that. And Peter knew it very well. As Paul says later in this letter, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All of us through faith in Christ and nothing else are completely equal in the eyes of God. There are no second-class Christians. We are all the same. We are all beloved children of God and brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus. But while Peter was still in Antioch, Paul says in verse 12 that certain men came from James to the church. James is the brother of Jesus. He wrote the letter in the New Testament. Now, James understood the gospel, but James's followers, well, they took it too far. They misrepresented what the gospel was. And like the false teachers that were now infiltrating these churches in Galatia, these people from James obviously were teaching that, you know, you have to observe some Jewish laws in order to be fully Christian. And when they showed up to this church in Antioch, Peter got scared. He was worried what they might think of him if they saw him sharing meals with Gentiles. So he withdrew from the Gentiles. He stopped eating with them, stopped fellowshipping with them, started acting again as if the ceremonial law in the Torah, the first five books of Moses, still applied. And Peter's example causes other Jewish Christians in that church to follow his lead. So Paul, who was afraid of no man, saw what Peter was doing. 
And he writes, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter, you're breaking the law of Moses in a million different ways. Yet somehow you want the Gentiles to start following the law. Physician, heal thyself. You're being a hypocrite. So Paul uses this episode with Peter to make the following point. If you believe that keeping God's law, even just a small part of it, or or performing any good work for that matter, if you believe that that plays any role in your salvation, you have utterly misunderstood the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have misunderstood what Christ accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. He lived the life of perfect obedience that we were unable to live for ourselves. He died the death of God-forsakenness that we deserve to die because of our sins. He did it in our place. One ancient Christian writer calls this the sweet exchange. On the cross, Christ exchanges our sins for his righteousness. He takes our sins upon himself and gives us his righteousness in return. How does Christ give us his righteousness? Let me give you a real world example to help you understand. Think of it like this. Queen Elizabeth II is married, and her husband is, what's his name? And what's his title? Yes, Duke of Edinburgh. Um, Wait a second. He is married to the queen. Why why isn't he King Philip? And, and, you know, I ask because, uh, you know, when Elizabeth's grandson, Prince William, finally becomes king in about 100 years, <laughs> those people live a long time. The woman who married him, the lovely Catherine Middleton, Duchess Kate, will become queen. She will become Queen Catherine. Her husband, the king, will bestow upon her that title and all the privileges that come with it. Because all that the husband has now also belongs to his wife, including his royal status. Libby Heath was at nine o'clock and she she tweaked what I just said a little bit, but mostly what I'm saying is true. It didn't affect my point. Um, Think about the metaphor that uh, the Bible uses in both the Old and New Testaments to characterize the relationship between God and his people. Well, a lot of metaphors are used, but the one that's used most often is the the, the analogy of, of husband and wife. And of course, this is in the New Testament, right? What does Paul and the other New Testament writers refer to the church as the bride of Christ? And we think of Paul's very moving words in Ephesians chapter five, when he uses an analogy, he says that, that our relationship to Christ is, is a lot like the relationship between a husband and and wife, and just uses very intimate terms to describe our the Christian's relationship with with Christ. 
It's, it's no exaggeration to say that when we unite with Christ through faith, it's as if we are married to Jesus. And what belongs to him now belongs to us. Just as Duchess Kate will inherit Prince William's royal status, so we Christians inherit Christ's righteousness. Remember what I said earlier. From God's perspective, when we're justified, it's just as if we've never sinned. Because Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, not because we did anything to earn it or deserve it. Now, I told you a few weeks ago about my friend David, who's Catholic. Years ago, I was in seminary, and I was pastoring a small Methodist church down in Forsyth, Georgia. And I was very excited because David and his family were going to come down, or yeah, they were living up in South Carolina. They were going to come down and visit us. And I wanted them to see, uh, you know, the, the reason why I uprooted my life and went to, back to school and, and uh, you know, made this drastic change. And he would get to see me as a pastor and a preacher in action. And I was excited about that. And he was excited too. But but when he arrived at our house early Saturday afternoon, the first thing he told us was that later that evening, he and his family were going to go down to Macon to the Catholic Church to go to Mass. And then they'd come back, you know, and spend the rest of the weekend with us and, of course, come to church with us the next day. Now, this really bothered me at the time. I I wanted to say, is my church not good enough that you can't come to it for one Sunday without also going to Mass? Of course, I now see that David was acting in a way that was completely consistent with his Catholic faith. He wouldn't dare miss Mass. Why? Because as a Catholic, he doesn't believe, sadly, in justification by faith alone. He doesn't believe that it's on the basis of Christ's righteousness rather than our own, that we're made acceptable to God. Faith is a part of it, of course, but it's not all of it. Instead, David believes that he has to go to mass and go to confession and do all the other things that the church requires week after week after week and receive a little bit of grace and a little bit of grace and a little bit more grace until finally he dies when he hopes he'll have merited through his good works enough of that grace to save him so that he'll go to heaven and also not spend a in inordinate amount of time in purgatory first. No Catholic can know for sure their eternal destiny before they die because they have to add to faith these good works and they can't know how much of these good works is enough. Look, I don't, I don't doubt for a moment that my friend David is saved, although he probably would. I don't doubt for a moment that because of his faith in Christ, he will be saved. But how how can my friend know peace in his life without that nagging thought in the back of his mind? What if I haven't done enough? 
And how can how can he love and trust and glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus, knowing that in spite of his faith, in spite of years of following the rules that that his church has laid before him, he could reach the end of his life only to find that he missed the goal toward which he'd been striving all his life. Heaven, because in addition to his faith, he hadn't done enough to be saved. Now, I don't believe that will happen to him. Because I know the gospel and I know that we're justified by faith alone and not works. But my my friend thinks that it's a it's a possibility. And that's got to affect the way he feels about Jesus. Could he sing those those beautiful uh, friend friends with Jesus songs that Roz just sang? How can he not feel more than a little bit afraid of Jesus? I share this story because I want you to see by contrast what we have in the pure gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. Do we believe it? Do we really believe it? Now, I did not grow up Methodist, always Protestant, but I I, I grew up Baptist. And let me tell you about someone that I knew um, from youth group back then. His name was Ricky. Now, he was cool and popular and good looking and all the cute girls were always hovering around him. So naturally, I hated him (laughs) as much as I wanted to be like him. I hated him. Um, Anyway, in the Baptist tradition, whenever the the preacher uh, offers an invitation, an altar call at the end of the service, a part of that altar call is always to rededicate your life to Christ. Have you heard of this? You know, this is what this is for those who are already Christians, but you know, they've kind of fallen off the wagon. They've kind of gotten off course badly enough that they want to make public their commitment, their decision to, to follow Jesus anew, you know, to dedicate their lives anew, uh, to repent of their sins publicly. And there's nothing wrong with that. I kind of like it, but but uh, it's just not a big part of our Methodist tradition. Anyway, every winter on a youth retreat and every summer at a youth camp, on the night when the pastor would issue this altar call, you could count on Ricky walking down the aisle in tears to rededicate his life to Christ. And when he did that, a sinful part of me would think, you know, I may not be as good looking as he is or as cool as he is, but at least I've never cried in front of my fellow youth. I couldn't, I would die of embarrassment. But Ricky would would tearfully rededicate his life to Christ, repent of his sins, start over again. Every year, twice a year, like clockwork. It sort of became like a joke to us in the youth group. We'd roll our eyes. There goes Ricky again, walking down the aisle rededicating his life. It was, it was sort of a joke to us. It wasn't a joke to him. Now, if I were Ricky's pastor today and he were still a teenager and I saw how plagued he was by his guilty conscience, I would remind him of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I would remind him that the basis upon which any of us is made acceptable to God isn't what we do or what we fail to do. 
It's what Christ has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And I would also gently tell him that walking down the aisle, even rededicating his life, doesn't save you either. Because even that can become like some kind of good work that we feel like we have to perform in order to be saved. No, we believe that Christ saves us and we receive this gift of salvation by faith. And we can be confident, so long as we keep trusting in him, that we, we can be confident that, that Jesus is not going to take this gift of salvation away from us. That's what I would tell him now. I certainly would. That thought wouldn't have crossed my mind 30 years ago. 30 years ago? Yeah, 30 years ago. Um, because here's what I was thinking back then when I saw Ricky walk down the aisle. I was thinking, Ricky, what's your problem? Get it right this time. Get your act together. Stop messing up so badly that you need to constantly rededicate your life every time we have one of these youth retreats. But I was dumb because what I, what I really meant was... Ricky, you need to be at least as good as me. You need to be at least as righteous as I am. Stop messing up worse than I mess up. In other words, I had my own standard of righteousness by which I judged others and myself. And so long as I lived up to these standards and followed these little laws, I I could feel accepted by God. I could feel forgiven by God. I could feel like God loved me. Just follow the rules. Obey the laws. Sure, Ricky was unable to do that. But I can. Aren't I something? Aren't I special? No need to rededicate my life here. No, sir. God loves me. Look at all the good things I'm doing. Look at all the bad things I avoid doing. And then when I fall below those standards and break those little laws, oh, the guilt, oh, the self-loathing, the self-condemnation. I hope you see my point. Just because we say we believe in justification by faith alone doesn't mean we really believe it. It doesn't mean we're living our lives as if we believe it. Let me let you on a little secret. All of us have serious problems. Did you know that? (laughs) None of us gets it right most of the time. None of us has our act together most of the time. (laughs) All of us mess up so badly that we need to rededicate our lives to Christ every day, if not every hour. None of us can do anything to deserve or merit God's love or forgiveness. We're a mess. Let's face it. But let's also face the good news. Thank God that he sent his son Jesus into the world to save us in spite of the fact that we're all messes. That's the gospel truth. Amen? Amen. Let us hear this truth, God. Let us let it penetrate our hearts. 
Let it remind us that we are in need of your grace at every moment of every day. Let us feel compassion for fellow sinners. And let us cling, let us cling to that old rugged cross by which we know that our sins have been wiped away by your saving grace, which you give to us through faith in your Son. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on a Sunday morning, I hope you'll consider joining us for worship. We have two worship services. We have a 9 o'clock acoustic contemporary and an 11 o'clock traditional service. Hope to see you there.